to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hi, Andy. So we're uh, we've been uh, you know waiting for Bragg here um, for a number of weeks, and uh, the shoe has sort of dropped um, on the Donald Trump uh, indictment um, in the sense that it is now known that he is. That, that the grand jury has issued an indictment, but it hasn't been read or released or whatever. We know that uh, President Trump is going to uh, be arraigned, I guess, on Tuesday, and the mm-hmm. indictment will be read, I suppose, in open court. Is, is that how it works? Typically. States do it differently, and different states divide up pretrial things differently. Your first court appearance, your bail hearing, your arraignment. So different states actually have slightly different procedures, and I am not an expert on New York. But this is going to be his first appearance in court, and the judge will be there, and presumably the judge will inform him of the, the nature of the accusations. So on America's Constitution, you know, we like to talk about the Constitution and constitutional issues that come up from events of the day. Um, and so we've been talking about this um, over the last couple of weeks, along with other things, and it's on everyone's mind. Um, at the same time, I think that uh, we've been trying to adhere to a philosophy that was expressed by uh, Senator Brian Schatz uh, from Hawaii, who was uh, scolding some of his fellow uh, senators and, and politicians And here's what he said. He said, just a reminder that there's no rule that you have to express your opinion before reading the indictment. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, indeed, uh, that's, you know, we've been trying to stick to that. We've tried not to say how we feel about an indictment that we don't know, you know, it's when we don't know its contents. Um, We we know we can speculate, but we don't know. And we still don't know. Now, this podcast will come out on Wednesday. The indictment will be read on Tuesday, but obviously there's not enough time to, to process that, record the podcast, edit, et cetera. So right, we're, because we're, meet, we're, we're doing this on Sunday night. Right. We waited as long as we could, but, uh, but here we go. But So we're not going to analyze the indictments as we don't know what it is, but we are going to talk about some issues that we think you, the audience, you know, uh, might be interested in. And one of the reasons that... And that we do know some things about already. So yes. that we can comment on, on them because we actually know certain structural features that are um, relevant to this episode. And one way that we uh, came to the conclusion that you might be interested in it was just sort of by talking among ourselves about the implications of what's been going on and then thinking about what we're just observing our conversation and saying, okay, here's an issue that we have been discussing. Maybe we don't entirely agree or whatever, um, but that's, that makes it uh, grist for the mill for the podcast. And one of the things that I think I want to start with is the conduct of uh, District Attorney uh, Bragg. Now, not to be necessarily a critic of his, but to think about some of the issues that he may have had to face or that the public is facing in assessing you know, his conduct. So, you know, there's a lot of criticism and he's been receiving, you know, terrible, uh, you know, racial uh, threats and, and violent threats of violence, you know, and, and you know, really inappropriate, terrible, although I suppose not entirely surprising, uh, letters and, and other threats in other forms. Um, 
And, you know, I guess that's the world we live in. And, of course, some of it, I believe, has been encouraged by former President Trump and many of his comments. Um, but let's think for a minute about um, the sorts of issues that uh, District Attorney Bragg has faced. So, for example, Akil, let's assume that he's in a position where he believes that Donald Trump has violated various New York statutes. Is he obligated to bring charges against him? No, not at all. We call it prosecutorial discretion. It's actually misnamed. It's really non-prosecutorial discretion. It's the discretion not to prosecute. And in my course syllabus, it's actually called the non-prosecution power, a paren, N-O-N, close paren. It, other people call it the prosecution power. But let's just stop for a moment and run the tape back, because you did say one interesting thing. You know, he's persuaded that Donald Trump has violated the law. Let's imagine that he thinks that a citizen, uh, you know, doesn't have to be a citizen, it could be an alien, but he, he believes that a target of a possible criminal case is not guilty. But he also, and you could say, well, then of course he's not going to prosecute. Well, let's just make it a little more interesting. He thinks that does that is Bragg or any other prosecutor we could postulate. The prosecutor thinks that the, the target, the suspect, the subject, the suspect is actually innocent in fact or in law. Um, and and the, the fact is he didn't do it at all, he or she, the, the subject. And in law, yeah, they did it, but that's actually not a criminal offense, rightly understood, given the way we read the statute or the Constitution actually intervenes and requires a curtailment of the statute in some way or actually a disregard of the statute in its entirety because it's an unconstitutional statute. So let's imagine that in fact or law or both, the prosecutor believes that a possible target is not guilty. But the prosecutor also believes you could, you could get a conviction. I, I could get a conviction on this. What's the proper thing for the prosecutor to do? In my view, and I do teach legal ethics pervasively at Yale Law School. And there's a joke is because uh, we tell the bar, we teach at ABA that we teach legal ethics pervasively. We don't just coordinate off into one course called legal ethics or legal profession. And some people say, yeah, pervasively means not at all. And in a Mars class, no, it means all the time. Whenever I'm talking about any issue at all, and by the by, there's a legal ethics issue. We pause and, and we talk about it just as we do on this podcast. So as an example, I teach Marbury versus Madison. It's almost malpractice not to in a constitutional law class. And I tell my students that really the first issue in the case, before even the remedy issue or the judicial review issue or the original jur the jurisdiction issue, the first issue is actually a recusal issue. Should John Marshall have recused himself? And I actually think yes. And that's a legal ethics issue when we talk about it. And why should John Marshall have recused himself? Not because he was appoint, uh, appointed by John Adams, who ran against Thomas Jefferson. That couldn't be enough of a basis for recusing. It's basically a suit against Thomas Jefferson. Marbury versus Madison is actually Marbury versus Jefferson. Madison is just a placeholder for Jefferson. He's the Secretary of State, and Thomas Jefferson is the president. And it can't be enough, gee, I was appointed by 
a president of a different point of view, even or today president of a different party or president who ran against the defendant in the case. That That's not enough to require my resignation because on the flip side if i wasn't appointed by that person i was probably appointed by the the defendant or the defendant's party and then you always have to recuse himself yourself everywhere so that's not what he has to recuse himself now he's thomas jefferson's second cousin um they're both randolphs that's not a basis sufficiently i think for because that they don't really like each other i don't even think that's a basis for recusal. Right, you shouldn't take the job in the first place if that's the if that's the reason you'd have to just recuse yourself across the board but john marshall has first-hand knowledge of adjudicative fact in this case the case is about a commission and one of the issues is was the commission actually properly signed and sealed and John Marshall, and, and this is a case of a, a original jurisdiction. The court is, in effect, trying the finding the facts. There's not a a, a jury. We're going to talk about juries, uh, Andy, um, uh, today, and which juries and, and where. But in Marbury, the court is sitting in as a trial court in original jurisdiction. And the facts have not been found by some other body. And John Marshall tells us the commission was sealed. The Great Seal of the United States was affixed to it, and. I'm thinking, yeah, John Marshall would know because his hand affixed the great seal of the United States to it, because at that moment, he was Secretary of State, as well as Chief Justice. For the last month of John Adams's tenure in office, John Marshall actually wore both hats. He was John Adams, Secretary of State, and the new league uh, nominated and, and confirmed and, and commissioned Chief Justice of the United States. He's in legal parlance, a witness. And you can't be both a witness and the trier of fact, because, you know, how could you be, for example, cross-examined about the, the correctness of your recollections or something like that? The commission wasn't properly delivered to Mr. Marbury. Well, whose responsibility fought with that? The guy who didn't deliver it, that guy whose name is James Marshall, and he's John Marshall's brother, and he failed to deliver it because he was the delivery man because John Marshall gave him the commission to deliver, and he didn't quite get the job done. Oh, and then he submits an affidavit because Marsh, Marbury isn't the only person who didn't get the commission. And when you read the affidavit, which I have done, and I'm kind of compulsive that way, and I, I read it. Um, I read the whole opinion and not just the little excerpts. And when you read the affidavit, because remember, this is, a, in effect, a trial proceeding. James Marshall, when you read, he says, you know, I got a bunch of commissions. I'm pretty darn sure that Marbury's was one of them. When I mean, you read the between lines, he's very sure about some others, but he's not actually, you know, by, it's not entirely clear. Um, that he doesn't sound like rock solid on, on Now, John Marshall knows that Marbury's was one of the commissions because he handed that commission to his brother. Okay. But Marshall writing in this very above the fray way just sort of announces, you know, that this commission was signed by the president and the great seal of the United States was affixed to it. He's finding all those facts. So I think John Marshall should have recused himself because he, to repeat, was a witness in an original jurisdiction trial court situation who had, these are important legal concepts, firsthand knowledge of adjudicative fact. What's an adjudicative fact? Like whether the traffic light was red or green in a traffic accident. Who hit whom? on a ski a ski slope you know if you're a witness and you saw you know some famous hollywood actress collide with some other person but who collided with whom and 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 who was reckless or something well if you were on the scene you're a witness saying oh this is what i saw 
you're a witness, an eyewitness at a traffic accident. Oh, I was there and someone ran, ran the light. Okay. You shouldn't be trying that case. You should be in the witness box and not on the bench. Okay. All that was an aside saying legal ethics in Amar's classes are taught wherever they arise. In the Nixon tapes case, I go out of my way. And this is going to be relevant, Andy, today to say three of the justices who rule against Richard Nixon, including the chief justice of the United States, Warren Berger, who writes opinion, were appointed by Richard Nixon. And a fourth recuses himself, and I think rightly so, a William Rehnquist, then associate justice. Why? Because he was appointed by Nixon? No, the other three didn't recuse themselves because he was in the Justice Department. And this was a lawsuit about high-ranking Justice Department officials, including John Mitchell, the head of the Justice Department. Was um, William Rehnquist in on any of the illegality of corruption? No, he wasn't. But I think he was wise to step down because the public is seeing that there is a lawsuit brought against the former head of the Justice Department and and all the president's men, the chief of staff of the president and the domestic policy advisor and, and other top officials, what our friend Bob Woodward in his great book and with Carl Bernstein calls all the president's men, ordinary people just watching, they think, wow, there appears to be at least sufficient for an indictment and a grand jury you know, has signed off on this corruption at the highest levels of the Justice Department. You know, how much higher does it go? Does it go up to the president? How much lower does it go? Is it the entire Justice Department? How much rot is there? How much cancer is there? You know, because some of the tissue appears to be carcinogenic. You know, um, when do we get to a clean margin? And Rehnquist, in my view, because he was in the Justice Department, wisely recused himself saying just because of the appearance, there are real questions about the Justice Department. I'm going to step aside. This was this was American justice at its best. In the Youngstown steel seizure case, people appointed by Harry Truman rule against Harry Truman. People appointed by the Democratic Party, Franklin Roosevelt before Harry Truman, are ruling against the, the in effect, the Roosevelt-Truman administration, including Robert Jackson. So legal ethics are really you know important and pervasive. So the first question, Andy, that you asked is, okay, assuming he thinks the guy's guilty, does he have to proceed? And I say, no, we'll talk about that. There's discretion. But if he thinks that the target is not guilty, even if he could get a conviction, he shouldn't do it because you're taking an oath to law and justice. You're not trying to convict every possible person that you can. And then the final little aspect of that is a, how is it the case, Akhil, that you think that you could get a conviction when you think the person is actually innocent? Well, there might be a lot of prejudice against this defendant in a certain neighborhood, a black person in facing an all-white jury in Mississippi in 1965. That Those are the facts of United States versus Cox, um, a case that I teach every year. Grand juries we talked about in our last episode are different than trial juries, pettit juries, but the line, I'm sure our audience, almost all our audience has heard about is a prosecutor can often get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich, meaning the grand juries 
And grand jurors often are very deferential to prosecutors. Maybe the law is unconstitutional, but in a way that actually the jurors aren't going to understand. But a prosecutor takes an oath to the Constitution itself. And if the prosecutor thinks the law is unconstitutional, that should weigh very heavily with the prosecutor, even if, again, the prosecutor might get a conviction. Well, I mean, I think someone that might want to take a, you know, the other side might say something to the effect that, you know, we have the jury, we have the judge, we have the trial process, and we have the grand jury in this case. Um, so why, who is the DA, you know, to put himself in a position to elevate his judgment, you know, above all of these other institutions? Now, one thing that you might say is, well, you know, we require unanimous verdict you know, from the jury. So in the spirit of unanimity, you know, the DA, you know, maybe gets his own no vote. And it's not Andy above, it's in addition to, there are all these filters. Who is a president to issue a pardon after the grand jury has signed off on something and a trial jury has convicted beyond reasonable doubt unanimously and the trial court has signed off on it and the appellate courts have signed off on it and yet presence pardon partly because in, in some situations because they think the person is and, and habeas uh, petitions may have been rejected post-conviction appeals and a president can pardon because he or she thinks that the person is innocent in fact or in law and Thomas Jefferson famously pardons everyone convicted under the Sedition Act after the judges have signed off on it because he thinks the Sedition Act is unconstitutional. So so it's not above, it's in addition to, there are all these filters, including the executive. So they're typically, there's a professional executive, the prosecutor, and the lay executive, the grand jury, the in the trial, the professional jurist, the judge, the bench, and the lay judges, we call them jurors. That's four different checks. And in the federal system, you have to have both the House and the Senate pass a law. And without a, a federal statute, there's there's no what we call federal common law of crime. So six different checks, House and Senate and the legislature, the professional executives, all the way from the line prosecutor, the AG to the president of the United States and the grand jury. And then with um, so two in the legislature, two in the executive, two in the judiciary, judge and jury, and a no from any one of them can, at the right time, stop the train. So it's not above, it's in addition to, that's one thing that you have to say, who is this person to put himself above? I'm saying it's in addition to, because if he says yes, still needs five other yeses, but second, who is he? He's a person who has taken a solemn oath to the Constitution. So if he thinks it's unconstitutional, that, that, that needs to weigh very heavily. Now, it's possible that it's not his call, it's, it's the call of someone higher than him in the department or something like that. There's an interesting question of a vertical hierarchy here, but he's also someone who has sworn to do justice. And I'm, I'm genuinely asking, is it just to prosecute someone that you honestly and sincerely believe to be not guilty? Even You also think you can get a conviction. And you might think you can get a conviction because other people are wrong. They're unreasonable. They're prejudiced or they're missing something that you actually see, like a, a, a legal argument about, for example, the unconstitutionality of the statute, which was Thomas Jefferson's reason for pardoning in the Sedition Act um, controversy. They were prosecuted under John Adams' administration and pardoned under Thomas Jefferson's administration. And all of that, by the way, audience, 
is in the words that made us, which I have not plugged in a very long time. Um, but um, well, but I think I there's did. a lot of issues that that are raised by some of the things that you said. So, for example, you know, let's think about the position that the district attorney is in. Uh, I guess what I'm going to get at here is what standard does he need to apply in making this decision? So, for example, the jury is going to have to decide based on uh, whether or not they reach, you know, reasonable doubt, it's a criminal case, um, on the evidence that's presented. But the DA has access to evidence that is inadmissible, perhaps. And he may, he may see something that he knows is not going to get in, but is exonerating. It seems now, to me that's, that's a, a brilliant very- point. Usually he needs to hand over all exonerating material, exculpatory material, in the federal system is called Brady material based on a case called Brady versus Maryland. Maybe it's Maryland versus Brady. And most states have similar rules because Brady is a rule that applies thanks to the 14th Amendment. Um, It's a component basically of due process and fair trials in every state. It's possible to imagine some exonerating material that it would not be admissible for, let's imagine that it's hearsay of a certain sort and that we just have general rules about hearsay. Let's imagine it's covered by a certain kind of privilege such that the like defendant wouldn't be like able to. Doctor patient, be, you know, privilege or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But somehow the DA knows something. Mm-hmm. Um, the defendant's not going to be able to get it in. And so. Yeah, uh, Andy, I would say this um, to, to prosecute. Um, you're going to laugh because you know, I, you know, my, my my Yiddish isn't so great, but you know, I would say that's a Shonda. Um, you, you know, to to, to it, it it's it, it's a very very bad thing to do. I I would say. And hold on, Andy, you said something else, and it's brilliant, and I just don't want to let it pass by. By what metric of proof or uncertainty um, must a prosecutor believe the person to be not guilty before they take it unto themselves to basically withhold this from the grand jury. And that's a nice question. You know, I think my inclination would be surely if they think it's more likely than not that the defendant is innocent, they shouldn't proceed. A fortiori, as lawyers would say, if they think that the defendant is not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, not guilty, innocent, well, of course, they shouldn't go forward. But what if they actually think the defendant is more likely than not guilty, but they actually don't think that they're guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? And a way to cash that out is if they were a juror, knowing everything that they know, they would actually vote to acquit. You know, in that situation, can they nevertheless in good faith say, I'm going to vote, I'm going to proceed because I actually think he did it. It's more likely than not that he did it. I'm not sure personally it clears my own proof beyond reasonable doubt threshold, but I do think he did it. And I do think I can get a conviction, so I'm not wasting the taxpayer's money at all. And he did it, I think, more likely than not. And if 12 jurors actually think he did it beyond a reasonable doubt, I can sleep at night. Now, I could see that. This is a very nice question that you asked, Andy, that until now, I don't think I'd ever quite focused on. So uh, well done. Thanks. Well, I'd like to take it a step further. Let's say that you, um, he reviews the evidence, 
brings charges. He thinks that's the right thing to do. Right. Now he's going to need to get the grand jury typically to right. go along with it. Right. Um, and they do. We, and, now, okay. and, and, and we've talked about, you know, as, as a practical matter, many grand juries are very deferential to the prosecutor. And here's why. This connects to our previous episode. They don't have access to that many other people, okay? The, the defense counsel, and now it's different in New York, but um, in many places, the defense counsel isn't there at all, and the possible defendant doesn't even have a right to show up. Now, New York has a tradition of um, typically allowing a target to, to come before the grand jury um, and, and maybe even allowing the target to bring a lawyer in. But in many places, the only person really that the grand jury interacts with is, is Jack McCoy, who kind of, you know, organizes the whole thing and, and the rules of evidence don't apply and they're not law trained. The grand jurors aren't. They defer to this person who actually tells them, here's what to do and here's what this means. And she or he has them kind of wrapped around his or her finger. Now let's assume that the, um, that the DA honestly believes that the accused is guilty. He brings the, um, the charge before the grand jury or the, the facts for the grand jury, the jury, the grand jury indicts, the trial begins. Now the DA becomes aware of new evidence that meets the standard that you and I agreed earlier would be sufficient for him to drop it on, get some medical records or something that, that contains some exonerating evidence that, w- that wouldn't be admissible because of doctor-patient confidentiality for some reason, let's say. Okay, and so now the trial has started, so he already decided to bring the charges, but now he becomes aware of this, but it's not going to be admissible, okay? Um, does, he dro- does he drop the charges or does he... Is it now, now the jury's been impaneled, maybe Jeopardy's attached, does he, you know, just let this go um, and just shuts his mouth, or what happens? I think he should drop it. Now, if, if he's, there's some uncertainty about whether it's possible that still further information might change, you know, his mind yet again, mm-hmm. he might actually be able to strike a deal with the defendant that he'll drop it um, without prejudice, mm-hmm. based on my vast legal experience at trial, which consists of having watched um, my cousin Vinny two and a half <laughs> times. Um, um, and Fred Gwynn, I believe, the actor in who plays the judge, there's a Yale connection, either the character or Fred Gwynn himself, actually. I can't remember which, but I think the judge in in the case is a is a Yale graduate, I believe. You you could look that up. There's this famous moment, I just remember, where the prosecutor, the smoking gun evidence of exoneration kind of comes in. You know, he says, case dismissed. You know, everyone's looking at him and and he just calls it an audible and he, he just drops the case and good for good for him. I think what the connection might be that the character in the movie right. is portrayed as having gone to Yale. Correct. Not right. that the Fred Gwynn went to Yale. No, no, no. The, 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 the character, character that, that Fred, Fred Gwynn plays. The, right. the, the judge is a Yale graduate, I believe. Oh. And by the way, yeah. speaking of Yale graduates, um, we we actually need to make a correction. Yes, yeah, speaking of calling an audible and making a mistake and then admitting it rather than just, you know, kind of ignoring it. Perfect timing, Andy. Let's let's confess that uh, that I messed up. Yeah, so since you messed up, I'll let you uh, I'll, uh, In the yourself. last episode, I was telling folks about how I was in a dorm in a place called the Old Campus, Bingham. And I thought it was named for Hiram Bingham, who was a very distinguished Yale graduate, archaeologist, discoverer of Machu Picchu, and in fact, I think a governor of Connecticut. 
But I got an, an email and Andy got it too, reminding, uh, telling us from someone who actually had been in, in, in Bingham himself, oh no, Bingham is actually named for a different Bingham, not Myron Bingham. Yes. And we have to give that person a thank you and a shout out. So um, so first of all, it was the, the, uh, the children of Charles Bingham. Yes. Um, and this is from our friend Robert Hammond. Yes. Um, so Robert, thank you very much for correcting the record. And, and actually, Bob Hammond did a lot of research. He, he, he filled his email with a whole bunch of documentation. Andy, let's put that, if we can, on this week's show notes, too, so we really properly, and last week's, too, so we really properly correct the record. Because if you're going to correct the record, do it in the right way. And our audience should also know, since I, you know, in the last several episodes have not talked about the words that made us, we have Andy, you and I on our website, a whole author's website connected with the words that made us that includes all sorts of errata. So every time I come across a mistake of, of one sort or another, I send it over to Andy and we, we upload the uh, correction. That's right. Which I think is the best practice. And actually, Bob Hammond, by the way, I had, we had, we've met Bob Hammond. Um, he, uh, he attended an event that we had um, at Yale a number of years ago where you and I debated the birthright citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, this had to do with, uh, not that we disagree on it really, but uh, I took the... the uh, the devil's advocate position of, of oppose, saying that the 14th Amendment doesn't, you know, grant birthright citizenship under certain circumstances that go beyond mm -hmm. the limited circumstances that you've uh, mm -hmm. explained in the past. Mm -hmm. um, Tribal Indians invading armies and things like right. that. Ambassadors. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, the Children that, of ambassadors, yeah. But the the event was an event to, to publicize a program at the time that was uh, called Yell for Life, and uh, of course, it went on to become Ever Scholar, and uh, just uh, which we also haven't plugged in the last thirty seconds, and we should. Yes, we should because this is really the last week for people to register for the Ever Scholar program in Italy, which is going to take place May twenty eighth to June eleventh. So, check out everscholar.org for information on that. Okay. Well, and that by the way, audience, this was all seamless. We did not rehearse any of these things. Uh, they, they, this is just a pretty organic conversation. I had no idea Andy was even going to, you know, are we going to go off on this tangent of a prosecutor who actually thinks that the target is not guilty? But, but actually, that's a that's a very good place for us to start, Andy. So, yeah. um, and I yeah. think that you know, you you complimented me on my question about what standard the prosecutor should apply. Yeah. But I think that that. Part of the reason that's in my head is because I'm thinking, you know, well, you're talking about the idea that District Attorney Bragg, who obviously does not believe that Donald Trump is innocent um, of these of whatever charges he's planning on bringing against him, um, he, according to you, has the is not it's not mandatory that he bring said charges um, just because he believes that uh, Trump may be guilty of the infractions that he plans on charging him with, that he has discretion here. So one of the things that I want to get to is what standard he should apply. But before we get there, you know, let's talk about some of the reasons that he, and let's say in the case of Trump, well, why wouldn't he charge him? You know, if he thinks he's guilty and, you know, you have the statute, obviously the legislature passed the statute, whatever it might be, you know, for a reason is they want people to 
not do the things that the statute forbids. And this is the, the mechanism that we've set up to deter and punish, you know, that sort, whatever sort of behavior it is. So why wouldn't he do his job, if you, as it were, and, uh, and bring charges? And this gets to a more fundamental question, I think, which many people bring. Like, well, if, we're, if you're going to answer this by giving an answer that has something to do with the fact that he was president or that he is running for president, then does that mean that presidents are above the law? Great set of questions. I believe that presidents and um, ha- have a different set of laws that apply to them. Sitting presidents, for example, I, I think are, as a general proposition, not subject to criminal prosecution against their will. They, maybe you could have an indictment, but they can't be forced to stand trial. And that's not because they're above the law. There's just a different law for presidents. They're subject to a, a different regime, impeachment, for example. That's while now, they're in office, correct? Right. So now, and now we have to think about whether we, there's anything remotely similar about ex-presidents or about people declared candidates for the presidency. So we're asking now. Well, before you go of, there, let's just say, though, that you know, if we're going to differentiate between you know, a charge that can be brought against a, a sitting president, you just can't bring it until he's uh, until he's no longer in office. Mm-hmm. Well, if that were the case of an ex-president, well, he's going to be an ex-president forever. Mm-hmm. So, so obviously that can't be the standard. You know, that, right. that would make no, him no, no, more no, immune need, that, than, a, right. than, than a sitting president. So that sure, sure, right. sure. So, but let's just talk about these two competing phrases. You know, uh, no man is above the law. No person is above the law. You know, or another version is just the rule of law and not of men. And then on the other side, this very powerful thing called, which is deeply rooted in the law itself. It's not something outside of the law. It's a legal concept that I teach every semester called, by the world, prosecutorial discretion. But what I insist on calling non-prosecutorial discretion, because I make this distinction, which we've been talking about. It's not the discretion to prosecute someone that is actually is innocent. It's the discretion not to prosecute someone you know who is guilty and whom you believe to be guilty. Now, why? Uh, what are the different? Comp- and there are many, many different reasons why. But let's go through some of them. One, um, we have massive overcriminalization, and it just wouldn't be possible as a matter of just resource allocation to prosecute every single person who has violated every single criminal law. It just wouldn't be possible to prosecute from the hit to the hilt. This is somewhat analogous to what presidents say about immigration and the border. You haven't given me enough uh, resources to stop every single person from illegally crossing or to pursue everyone who has successfully but illegally crossed over. What I tell my students, and I insist before I tell them this, that there be a no show of hands, but I say, I want you to think about all the drug crimes that are happening every day on campus in the, the Yale dorms, which are called residential colleges, or for freshmen there, these old campus places like Bingham, which is not named for Hiram Bingham. Uh, okay. And I remind my students that actually possession of a fairly small amount of marijuana is actually today a federal offense. 
federal government isn't prosecuting. That's non-prosecutorial discretion. That's Merrick Garland. That's even Jeff Sessions before him. And some states actually still have criminal laws on the books. Others don't. They, they've they decriminalized small amounts of, of marijuana. But decriminalization does not mean somehow that they've nullified federal law. They're just not piling on, in addition, a, you know, a state law prohibition. Why did even Jeff Sessions not go after all these folks? And and one is resource constraints, and, and a, a related one is he's not going to get convictions in a whole bunch of places because, let's imagine, for example, he tried to prosecute people in Colorado. Colorado was one of the first states to basically decriminalize. Well, the problem is, even in a federal prosecution in Colorado, you're going to have a jury of Coloradans and there are going to be a bunch of pot smokers on that jury and they're not going to convict, which is in lay terms called jury nullification. Technically, I use the more technical formulation. And Oh, I've written a ton about juries, like probably a, a, almost as much as anyone around, truthfully. Um, many, many different articles. It's called acquittal against the evidence. Now combine those two things. It's going to take a lot of money and you can't prosecute everyone, especially all the small fry. And you're unlikely to get convictions for small fry prosecutions because the juries are going to actually not unanimously convict and only takes one to hang the thing. Now let's stop right there because there's this organization. It's a very interesting organization. It's called FIJA, the Fully Informed Jury Association. And they have a statute that they kind of a model statute that they want to get adopted. It's called FIJA also, the Fully Informed Jury Act. And they want jurors to know that they have the power and they believe, I actually agree with them, that jurors have the right, not just the power, but the right to, as it were, nullify, to vote no, even though the person is guilty. So the technical term is acquittals against the evidence. The evidence shows beyond a reasonable doubt, let's stipulate the admissible evidence that the defendant did it, a juror is nonetheless permitted to vote no, to uh, vote to acquit. And if one juror can do it, they all can do it. And this is called jury nullification. And judges sometimes tell juror, oh, you can't do that. If you find, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, this and this and this beyond a reasonable doubt, the elements of the offense, you know, that there was in a murder case, let's just imagine that there was taking of life and that it was premeditated and the, the plaint uh, and the defendant's actions caused and all the rest that all the elements you must convict. And gee, if it's a murder case, I would hope that in general they would. Actually, there is no legal duty whatsoever. It's not just the power of the jury to acquit against the evidence. It's their right. Why do I say that? Because I think there are four or so legal rules in place today and that have always been in place that are only understandable if there's a right of the jury to acquit against the evidence. Here's one. No judge can ever, it's called direct a verdict, tell the jury it must convict. In a civil trial, you can do that all the time. You tell the civil jurors, you must find the plaint for the plaintiff. You must find the defendant. You can tell them in a criminal case, you must find the for the defendant. It's asymmetric. You may never, there are no directed verdicts of guilt in America. The only one that I ever even heard of was a judge in the late 19th century tried to direct a New York jury to convict Susan B. Anthony of illegally voting because she was a woman and the law said only men can vote. And this was outrageous that the judge did that. The judge later became a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, in, in fact. But that's the only thing that I've ever heard of in the American, Anglo-American 
tradition. So, so you have there's no there's, direct there's verdict irony of guilt, there, right? Because at the founding, a lot of times the the this, the juries, you know, knew that this was their right, and there was a uh, a judge that was impeached for refusing to. And, and the majority uh, voted to convict a justice. His name was Samuel Chase. And he told the jury, he, he, he pre- prevented the defendant's lawyer. This was a Sedition Act prosecution of a man named James Callender. And he was convicted in part because the marshals rounded up pro-prosecution jurors from folks who were hanging around the courtroom. And the judge, who was a Supreme Court justice writing circuit, Chase, kept cutting off the lawyer who kept trying to argue to the jury that this was an unconstitutional statute and tell them they have the power to acquit. The judge gets himself impeached. More than a majority of the Senate actually votes to convict, but not by two thirds. The defense attorney, a man named William Wirt, goes on to be the longest serving attorney general, maybe ever, but definitely until the modern era and very distinguished at that. So there are no directed verdicts of guilt in criminal cases. That's one. A second is once the jury acquits, there's no way to reverse that judgment notwithstanding the verdict. In legal terms, it's called a JNOV, judgment non obstantande, you know, a verdicto or something. I don't know any Latin and I even pronounce it with a V, it would be a W, uh, so verdicto. If the jury convicts, See, it's asymmetric. A judge can always enter a JNOV, reverse that. In a civil case, either way, for plaintiff or defendant, a judgment, a judge can can reverse what a jury's done. But a jury acquittal is done. It's double jeopardy. It can never be undone, even if actually the judge gave him incorrect instructions, uh, way too pro defendant. He messed the he or she messed up. You can't undo that. If the jury comes in with inconsistent verdicts, a person is charged with robbing the victim and then murdering the victim. And either the person did both or neither because the defense is mistaken identity, it was someone else. And if the jury comes back with a verdict, conviction on the robbery, but not on the murder. Those are actually inconsistent verdicts given the nature of evidence. And yet a judge must disregard the inconsistency, can't take any action because maybe actually the person, the jury just acquitted against the evidence on the more serious charge in order to to come up with a a rough judgment sort of compromise. My murder or robbery thing wasn't maybe the better example. Let's imagine actually it's a bank robbery and there are a couple of different charges. If you added them all up, they'd add, you know one is armed robbery and one is bank robbery. And if you added them all up, it would be a very serious sentence. And so to cut the defendant a break, they just convict on the one rather than the other. Uh, here's another example. And this is actually the classic one. It's in Blackstone. You're a horse thief and you stole the horse. You really did. And you've got no defense. The only thing that the jury has to decide is whether the horse is worth more than a a pound and a shilling. Because if it's worth more than a pound and a shilling, it's actually a grand larceny. That's a capital offense. And you're going to be hanged. If it's 
horse was less than a, a pound in a shilling. It's petty larceny, and they'll send you to the penal colony of Georgia instead, or um, Australia or something. You'll escape with your life. Now, everyone in the courtroom, everyone knows that that horse is worth more than a pound. It's, you know, it's a, it's a nice animal. But the jury comes back with a verdict on the lesser offense of petty larceny just to spare the defendant's life, because juries are sometimes, you know, nice that way and nothing the judge can do about it. Okay. And Blackstone calls this pious perjury. It's perjury because it's basically false. The guy's guilty of the greater offense, but it's pious because it it originates out of a, a sense of mercy and tenderness. Just to insert a little correction here, it's not larceny, but theft that's charged here. Okay. Back to Akil. There is a right in America to acquit against the evidence. It goes all the way back to an English case called Bushel's case from 1670. It involved William Penn, the great Quaker, who will uh, be uh, one of the founders of the Commonwealth that we call Pennsylvania. Why do I mention this Fiji stuff? It's an interesting organization. It's kind of, you know, left-wing libertarians or right-wing libertarians. It's basically like tax cheats and pot smokers. (laughs) And I'm their patron saint because, you see, I actually believe this stuff. They used to sometimes loiter around or just gather around a court um, building and hand out leaflets to people walking into the court building, including would-be jurors or actual jurors coming into the building and give them this leaflet like, did you know that, you know, you have a right to acquit against the evidence in these these, uh, tax cheat cases or pot smoking cases or anything else? And they were prosecuted initially by the New York prosecutor. And I seriously thought about, I really did, this was several years ago, going down, standing with these people and handing out copies of my books in which I say all that and daring the prosecutor, go ahead, make my day, prosecute me. You know, um, I, 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 I want you to because because one of us actually knows something about the Constitution and one of us doesn't. And you're picking on these other folks, pick on me. And I thought, Yes, Vanitha's is really going to like it if I do that. You know, it was a kind of a moral crisis for me. You know, should I do this? In the end, they dropped the charges against the Fiji people, so I didn't have to. You see, if someone has read my book, they already know this. And and, and I mean, I've written this in several books. Uh, no, um, I have to, I have to say that I have I feel a need here to stick up for Vanitha. Okay, <laughs> she she's not the one that showed any cowardice here. You know, so <laughs> don't blame her. No, no, no. But you see. Why wouldn't they ha- um, have brought suit against me? This is non-prosecutorial discretion. One, because they might actually realize they're going to lose this case and not just lose this case. This is OK. So now let's go through some other. When you lose one case, you lose a little bit of leverage because here's another thing that you do. A person is guilty of crimes A, B, C, D and E. But it's going to take a lot of resources to prosecute them for A, B, C, D, and E. And so you cut a deal, a plea bargain, and they only plead to A. And the question is whether A is the top count or the bottom count or something in between. And they get a great break. If they went to trial, you'd throw the book at them. Maybe you convict them and then they'd be convicted of everything, but not 100% guaranteed that you'd win. And it's going to take a lot of resources. So you they plead guilty to the lesser offense. And here's the one thing you don't want to do in general. You don't want to bring a case that you lose or that even you hang because your leverage 
in these plea bargains is a feature of your track record. 95% of cases plead out, and the system would grind to a halt if they didn't today. But your your leverage as a prosecutor in those 95% of the cases is based in part on your track record in the 5% that go to trial. And, and if you're losing you know, any of those cases, then it's going to be harder for you to get a good plea bargain. You want to prosecute the most serious offenses and you need evidence against them. So, and we talked about this at the last episode, you have to, you start at the bottom of an organization, you get them uh, to plead out. And then as part of the plea, they're going to give you evidence against people higher up. And then you have, and then you do plea bargains for the mid-level people. And then you flip them and, and you kind of work your way up the food chain. That's another reason. Maybe you think that there are... These are reasons that you might not bring a charge against someone. Yes. Here, here, here's another one. Um, and this is very relevant for Bragg. Okay. If I bring this charge, it's not just that I have the possibility of losing this case that's going to hurt me in all my other plea bargains, which are important and my office relies on plea bargains. It's not just that. So that if I lose this case, let's just imagine, I, I believe in the rule of law. I think this guy is guilty of 30 different um, counts. He's, he's a lawless person. That's what I, um, Prosecutor Bragg, really believe. But there's, there's, there's never a 100% guarantee that I'm going to actually get a conviction. And if I don't get a conviction, in fact, if, I, if it's, there's an acquittal, I may end up empowering this person, make it more likely that this person is actually going to be the, the next president of the United States, the head of the entire legal system, who's going to be picking the next attorney general and can count and can fire at will the next attorney general and can countermand the next attorney general. And I'm going to be putting this person possibly in a position of of committing many, many, many more, far more serious crimes. Should I take that risk into account. And, and that's not true of most other criminal defendants I'm going after, but it is true here. Even if I get a conviction, that's, okay, that's, that's if there's an acquittal. Suppose I get a conviction. A conviction may not be logically inconsistent with the person running for president and winning. There have been people like Eugene Victor Debs who actually ran for president from prison. And again, if this is going to have a, a, a backlash and backfire and actually make him, you know, even more popular among his base, it's a nice question whether I'm, I'm permitted to take that into account as someone who believes in the rule of law because I'm actually maybe empowering this person to be a much bigger threat to the rule of law going forward. Andy, I'd love to get your reactions just even on that one. Well, I think it's related to, a, to another uh, aspect of this, which is that the public may receive poorly the notion that, the, that uh, you know, an ex-president or a candidate for president is being tried for what might seem like a, a trivial offense or, a, or, or an offense of insufficient a seriousness to justify prosecuting this kind of person. So, in other words, it's going to take a lot of resources to try him. He's going. He's not going to plead. He's going to. He's going to fight. You know. He's going to. You know. Suck up all the air in the news cycles for for years. And so if you're going to do that, 
it seems to me that you you might want to say is this uh, alleged crime of significant seriousness that I want to you know take it up, or are there other and, crimes? And Andy, on that, um, I for me the best case for a prosecution would be there are many other people whom we have convicted on very similar fact patterns whose name is not Donald Trump and who are not president and who are not running for president. So this is just a garden variety application of a law on facts very similar to five other cases where we have convictions. You're not saying that this is because we don't know. I'm saying that's that would that That would would be be what I would like to. That's ideally what I would like Mm -hmm. to see. Right. So Um, because then I could tell my fellow Americans who are skeptical, this case is on all fours. That's what we say in law, indistinguishable from, you know, so, for example, let's imagine there are at least two ways of of looking at a crime. You look at the, the words of the statute and, and the elements of the offense. You see, this meets that. If that's the way you looked at it, then you can prosecute anyone for driving 56 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. Okay? But we don't actually prosecute people in general for driving 56 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. So ideally, if you're going to go after someone prominent, I'd, I'd want you to show me that you go after small fry who did the exact same thing. I'm not going after you because you did 56. I'm going after you because you did 70 and you were on or 75, 80, 85. You were on the speed gun. And here are a whole bunch of other folks um, who don't have famous names. Um, and we went after them on just the same kind of facts. Oh, by the way, here's one other reason for prosecutorial discretion that may be particularly relevant in um, the Mar-a-Lago case. Maybe you got you have all the evidence, but the defense is going to be able to raise some issues that are going to be compromised sensitive sources of information. A defense, this is sometimes called the business gray mail. Ah, you can prosecute me, but I have a right then to to present all sorts of other evidence. And when I do, certain confidential informants, certain spies abroad, all the rest. Um, their um, identities are now going to become public. Oh, you can prosecute me for mishandling some of this top secret information, but as part of my defense, I'm going to be able to spill some secrets that you don't want spilled. As I said, that's kind of almost like blackmail by the defendant, and it's um, and it's called gray mail. Mm-hmm. So, okay, um, now... You say, well, you know, you want to see people in comparable positions that have been, or or maybe lesser positions that have been prosecuted for similar violations. Of course, there are going to be some things that implicate a president that don't apply to other people because they're not the president. Yep. You know, so that's so, the top secret stuff, right? Or even in this case, I mean, you know, a lot of people won't be implicated normally because one of the charges may be a campaign finance charge. So that would only apply to people that, that campaign. Or maybe, you know, the, his behavior is so egregious that no one else, you know, <laughs> sunk so low. So there's so there's no one else. Well, that- then at least you could show that, you know, other people who actually didn't even sink as low. You know, we went after them on the off fortiori thing. But remember, I have some real anxieties about the campaign finance issues. And I also do worry a little bit about 
prosecuting people who aren't the blackmailer, but the blackmailee. Now, I'm not saying that this was blackmail, but or the hush money uh, from a, as a technical point. The whole point of hush money is it's supposed to be a hush hush. And I'm not and we ordinarily don't think it's criminal conduct to pay hush money. And of course, if you do, you're going to want to keep it quiet. That's the whole point of hush money. Uh, so yes. anyway, um, and it may very well be that, Akhil, you don't know what you're talking about. Here are 20 other people in hush money situations mm-hmm. that we prosecute. But that's what I want to to see, you know, other hush money cases, because when you're going to try to actually paper over the transactions so that it's not easy to trace the fact that this was actually hush money. OK, so you've listed a number of criteria now that the DA should in, might keep in mind when making the decision whether to uh, use his discretion to not prosecute, to refrain from prosecution, you might want to call it. Um, so there are these criteria, but by outlining these criteria, the implication is that there are cases conceive, that you could conceive of where you would prosecute. Or you of would course. send uh, a, an ex-president or... Yes. Yes, so it's not... And, and, and here's a hypothetical, you know, shooting someone at high noon on, was it Main Street or Broadway or well, something like that? Fifth Avenue, yeah. Fifth Avenue, there you go. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, because I promise you that people who don't even shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, but only on Third Avenue or, you know. Well, Fifth um, Avenue is where Trump Tower is. So that Right. Be okay. But 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 we, we prosecute people who, who, who shoot other people, you know, in uh, in broad daylight or at nighttime. So that was what was so brazen about that. Um, and it was hyperbolic, perhaps, but but yes, yes, of course, then we do that. Then okay. that, that that's easy, and that's what I'd like it to be, and I and maybe it will be when all the facts come out. Right, and the, so now you're sitting with a situation where, from our you know our perspective, looking, and we mentioned this last time, looking at the investigation that's going on in Georgia, and the investigation that is going on regarding the the papers that were being kept at Mar-a-Lago, if not other places. Um, those investigations, it seems like, might bear fruit with charges that are quite serious and that you might be comfortable with uh, Donald Trump being prosecuted for those crimes, possibly. And not just, it's not just the law. You see, again, I want, I want a clean case, ideally, on the facts. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Now, so that's not quite the same as your position regarding sitting presidents. So if a sitting president shot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue, you would say, I believe that, yes, they can be prosecuted, um, but it would be after they left office. And they should be immediately impeached and convicted. And one of, and you can say, well, suppose it were a crime of passion. It's not really a high crime misdemeanor um, of an impeachable sort. I would say hiding behind your status as present to avoid an immediate trial is itself. Um, and that, now that, that involves your sort of official behavior. So I think the House in an instant can impeach someone and the Senate, you know, after a proper proceeding, which he gets to make his defense, one day she um, can convict and then you're an ex and off we go with ordinary criminal prosecution. And I even take the position that you can perhaps be indicted while you're a sitting 
president and the re- purpose of the indictment would be statute to toll the statute of limitations. So now you're on notice that this awaits when your service as president ends. And in addition, because I believe that the president's immunity here from a sitting president from criminal prosecution is a waivable one, a president might want to actually try the thing now. And one way to do that might be, for example, um, if it were burdensome or onerous to um, the, the trial itself, to temporarily hand off power under the 25th Amendment to your VEEP the way you would if you were undergoing a scheduled appendectomy or something like that, and then do the trial and then come back after the acquittal that you expect. And you, But you'd want an immediate trial now precisely so that you'd be exonerated. I could imagine a sitting president wanting to that. And again, my position isn't that you can't have an indictment, but that you can't have a trial that's taking place during the presidency against the president's will. And by the way, that nice little wrinkle about indictment versus prosecution, big shout out to Walter Dellinger, who had some conversations with me that helped me see that with great clarity, the the late, great Walter Dellinger. You know, I'm not sure that this is an entirely consistent position because you're saying that the um, the reason behind your kibosh on putting the president, a sitting president, under trial is that he has to attend to the people's business. Yes. Well, I mean, there. When you're faced with an indictment, you have certain business about defending yourself at that point as well. Um, you might, you know, m- you know, move against the grand jury, you might, you might fight. Well, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things you might do. Uh, uh, well, but and, and that might be true of civil litigation too, but it can go forward while your presidency, the Paula Jones lawsuit. I distinguished between a criminal case where your body has to be in a certain place and someone else, a judge, you know, is actually telling you, the president, where your body has to be. Mm-hmm. And that's not true of the indictment. And that's not true of a, a, a mere, mere civil litigation, but that is true typically of a criminal trial. And that's why I drew the line where I did. There are always, you know, competing considerations and mm-hmm. you've got to draw a line somewhere. And that's where I drew the line and why. Now, you know, of course, Mr. Trump is an ex-president. And a lot of times, I mean, a lot of what I've heard is that, well, you know, we shouldn't be be going after you know ex president. So there's right away the you know the Republicans saying this is you know witch hunt, uh, politically motivated. You know, of course, I think the, that rings a little hollow because I can't imagine anything that any prosecution would be brought against him that they wouldn't be saying that it's that it's uh, politically motivated. Well, here here's what again, if you're asking me what would be the best of all the gold standard, just like I said. Oh, a crime where there are a whole bunch of other cases, successful convictions on all fours. You know, here's what would be best of all. It's a case, let's imagine, brought in federal court with an Article Three judge who has life tenure, an Article Three judge uh, appointed by Donald Trump himself. And now it's like Warren Berger and Louis Lewis Powell and Harry Blackman ruling against Richard Nixon in the Nixon tapes case. But somebody's got to bring the case, though. Robert. uh, So um, ideally, you know, let's imagine actually by a person from your your own political party 
And if the other party's in power, they actually turfed it off to a special prosecutor whom they picked, who is someone that you in a past life have vouched for because you nominated this person to be U.S. attorney or, or, or what have you. And the trial is being held actually in a venue that's pretty supportive of you that, that um, in a city or county or state that that voted for you. So let's take the great Stephanus Bebus, my student. I'm very proud of him. There was particular legitimacy when he got these lawsuits claiming that there was a stolen election. And he said, these are bogus lawsuits. And he had credibility in part because he was but on the, the court commissioned, nominated and, and commissioned by President Donald J. Trump. Well, of course, the, you know, the special counsel, Jack Smith, um, you know, has a long and distinguished record as a, uh, you know, as a as a uh, prosecutor. And, and that's different, you see, um, and, and no disrespect to Prosecutor Bragg, but he's I think he's a Democrat in a state system, but you asked me what the gold standard mm-hmm. would be. You know, ideally, I'd like a Republican prosecutor, a Republican judge in a Republican state. And they say the guy's guilty. We are living in a world where there's just lots of skepticism uh, of folks acro- on the other side of the political aisle. And if I were brag, I would try to say, what if the situation were completely reversed? How would I think about this if this were Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. you know. Um, well, maybe um, he's and, done that. Um, good, good. Um, but now how would we think about it if Bill or Hillary Clinton were facing charges in Oklahoma, you know, or some, you know, very strong um, anti-Clinton state? Right. It's a little different here because Donald Trump is from New York and he mm-hmm. did business in New York. He lived in mm-hmm. New York. Yeah. And he so he committed crimes in New York, possibly. So mm-hmm. so that. You know, you can't I, really I, I'm not form saying it out that, to the I, Oklahoma. I, I'm not saying yeah. that there isn't jurisdiction. I'm just mm-hmm. saying, you know, if you if you ask me at the end of the day, how we're going to persuade people who haven't looked at all the evidence that they should accept this verdict as on the up and up, they're going to be more likely to accept it if it's coming from people that have credibility with them. So, um, and and unfortunately. And look, I'm from I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area and there's a meme out there and I'm a Democrat, San Francisco Democrat. OK, and and Andy, you're you love New York. You you just do. But, you know, of course, that there are all sorts of people who have just deep skepticism of of Manhattan. Home of Rudolph Giuliani, who was the <laughs> mayor of New York. But but I, no, I mean, so OK, so you. Really, what we're doing here is we're talking about the various factors that go into these decisions. And perhaps the district attorney, one factor for him to consider is that he's he's the one that has the jurisdiction here. I mean, you know, these if these crimes are committed in New York, it's up to him to say it's going to be prosecuted or it's not going to be prosecuted. Fine. And one of the things that he that he might consider is that it's not going to be viewed as an objective prosecution by much of the country, no matter what evidence he produces. And if there are competing prosecutions elsewhere um, that might have more credibility, maybe he might be put himself in a better position to let these other prosecutions unfold. And then if, if Trump is found guilty in, in a more 
what might be considered a more objective forum, then he can bring his charges at that point if he's convinced that they uh, are, are worth bringing. And that'll be in an environment of uh, that would add some credibility. That's right. another way to think about it. And we're not saying right. that. And that's, and that's in addition to this other, just, I'm just raising the question. What if the prosecution makes it much more likely that this guy, because of backlash, is going to be able to commit all sorts of additional crimes as the next president of the United States? Because this prosecution, let's imagine, what if it explodes in your face and because of this, Trump um, absorbing and being energized by all this energy that propels him back into the White House. And he uses that as the cockpit to commit all sorts of additional crimes. How are you, Prosecutor Bragg, going to feel about that? Are you allowed to take that scenario into account the way you take all sorts of other scenarios into account when you're deciding whether to bring a prosecution because there's it's um, there's almost never an obligation only an option which is what i mean when i talk about and i do this every semester it's not unique to brag this idea of non-prosecutorial discretion and andy here's just one you know story in the marcus constitution a, a department let's take bill clinton he was president he faced possible criminal sanctions after leaving office and even while he was in office, there was a lot of speculation about what might happen immediately afterwards. And there was a special prosecutor appointed. His name was Robert Ray. And the New York Times ran uh, an editorial saying, well, because Clinton was acquitted in, the, in his impeachment, it really would be double jeopardy to go after him again. And this was idiotic about five different ways. And so I wrote up um, a, a piece and they actually ran it. Uh, here are two, uh, several of the ways in which it's idiotic because the criminal prosecution was actually for a, a different set of offenses than the impeachment and a different standard. Impeachment is a high crime and misdemeanor. Let's imagine actually that the crime that you're really guilty of is, is a low crime. Now, if an acquittal in impeachment absolutely bars a subsequent punishment, then you're getting off scot-free and you're going to create bad incentives. So people say, the guy doesn't deserve to walk. So so I'm actually going to vote to convict him in impeachment because otherwise if I acquit him, you know, he's scot-free and he doesn't deserve. So it would just screw everything up and, and, it, and it's not double jeopardy. So I, I wrote a piece, you know, explaining some of that. And it ran in the New York Times. The Originally, actually, my co-author was Neil Katyal. He was a student. And the Times just came up with this new rule that, oh, we don't allow co-authors. I said, well, what about, you know, a, you know, the following five things? I said, oh, well, those were not with students, you know. And I said, well, like, why is that different? But I, and I tried to say, listen, Neil Katyal, he's a student now, but he's going to be very famous. And you're, you're going to actually be very happy that you were the first one to publish them. I told Neil, listen, I'm, and I'll make it up to you in some other way, but they're, you know, kind of being ornery about the thing. Here was the last line of the piece when I wrote it. We pitched it to them. See, because I'm a Clinton person. I voted for Clinton twice. I voted for his wife. But just to sort of signal that, um, and oh, and you know, a lot of o the audience is going to say, well, this is just a Yale law professor, you know, backing his pal, his um, political crony or something. Clinton did do things that were wrong, and I wanted to, you know, be stern. And so at the very end, this was the line. Um, I, I said, even if he's technically guilty, 
there's this thing called non-prosecutorial discretion and maybe he suffered enough. Oh, that's another reason. The guy suffered enough. You know, he's guilty of all sorts of things, but okay. There are lots of, of reasons for mercy and, and non-prosecutorial discretion. I said, and these can be taken into account. He's been humiliated. He's been gone through, he dragged through impeachment, all the rest. Wise prosecutors know that sometimes it's better. And, and remember, Clint was accused of lying under oath, perjury. I said, wise prosecutors understand that sometimes it's better to let lying dogs sleep. And when I get it back in the edit, they cut it out. And I was so proud of myself. And they said, why did you cut it out? And they said, that's a cliche. I said, no, the cliche is to let sleeping dogs lie. You know, so we could say something. Some prosecutors, you know, know that sometimes it's better to let sleeping dogs lie and lying dogs sleep. Long pause. And then the editor says, are you saying that the sitting president of the United States is a lying dog? And I said, I kind of stammered because I thought it was so clever or something. I said, uh, yeah, I guess I am. Another long pause. He said, not in the New York Times, you're not. <laughs> and I'm glad they saved me because, Andy, this is the same thing that you do. Sometimes I say absolutely insane things and you 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 just gently edited out as my friend. And thank you for that. <laughs> so so um, that story is told in uh, my book, The Constitution Today. The essay, which we'll put up on the podcast, is called Bringing Justice to Clinton. And it's about kind of prosecution of ex-presidents. And the political shoe was on the other foot, you see, back then, because I was talking about a Democrat rather than a Republican who did lie, who, di who did commit a crime, and a crime for which lots of other people are, are prosecuted for. And there, you know, I said, well, you know, there's perjury and there's perjury. What, people lie about sex. It's not the same sometimes. So so on legally, a lie is a lie is a lie. But for me, show me other perjury prosecutions, you know, where people lied about embarrassing sex situations. That's what I wanted. That, that's what I was looking for, you know, back then. Same, I have the same standards, I believe, you know, whether the president is someone I voted for or not. But the piece is called Bringing Justice to Clinton. It ran in the New York Times on Monday, March 20th, 2000, it was while he was still in office, but in contemplation of prosecution after he left. And he got rid of that lying dog sleep line. And so the, um, instead, here's what I said. Here's the last paragraph. This special prosecutor may decide to go ahead and indict. The Senate's verdict in the impeachment trial does not bar criminal prosecution. If this acquittal in the impeachment. Last sentence. But in this case... A good prosecutor would use discretion. See, non-prosecutorial discretion. That's what I, you know, was, was saying way back then. And since I mentioned Walter Dellinger, he's from the South. You see, I came up with this lying dog sleep because Southerners have all these colorful expressions and some, and often they involve animals. So Hillary, you know, she, she um, said this a whole bunch of times. She was talking about people who were opposed to her husband. And this was the vast right-wing conspiracy. And she says, you know, down South, they say, if you see a turtle on a fence post, on the top of a fence post, it didn't just get there. See, because the turtle, someone had to put it there. Okay. Mm -hmm. I asked Walter Dellinger, he was the head of the Office of Legal Counsel under President Clinton. He also later was, was acting Solicitor General of the United States, arguing before the Supreme Court. And he came once to Yale to give a presentation. And I said, are you in your office involved as a lawyer in defending Bill Clinton, a sitting president 
This was a civil lawsuit. It was the Paula Jones case. And that is taking up time, but his body didn't have to be in a certain room at a certain time. There wasn't someone telling the president where he could and couldn't be at any nanosecond. You can't be in the situation room because you've got to be in my courtroom or something. And that's the thing to be avoided because at any moment, the president may need to be in the situation room and can't even tell us why, you know, because he's plotting something against bin Laden or something like that. So I asked Walter, I said, are you, you know, in your uh, capacity, government capacity involved in the Paul Jones litigation. And he smiled and he says, no, when he's getting girls, he's on his own. <laughs> he says, which reminds me of a story, because that's how Southerners are. He said, I was at the, the laundromat the other day and two gals were talking. This is this is Walter. This is how he talked, you know. I'm at the laundromat and they were talking about the present. And one of them said to the other, that old Bill, he's a hard dog to keep on the porch. <laughs> So, um, and that's all a huge shout out to my uh, dear friend, the late, great, departed Walter Dellinger, a very great man. So, okay. So, you know, we've been through, you know, quite a bit about this, uh, I think over the last few weeks, but I think now audience, you know, on Tuesday, the indictment will be revealed and you can ask yourself, you can read it, hopefully, and ask yourself, okay, if I were... District Attorney Bragg, given now what I know about my discretion and the various criteria that I might have used, would I have brought these charges? And, you know, so we'll see. I don't know what our answer will be. Um, so we'll, we'll see, and we'll talk about it more in the coming weeks. Thank you, Akil. Thank you, Andy. <laughs>